Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. White centrist grandpa has settled into the Oval Office. The New York Times has published a blockbuster and definitive piece showing just how close to an actual fascist coup we came in this country. And Stacey Abrams has been nominated for the Nobel Peace Prize. How's your 2021 going? I'm Steve Phillips. It's Black History Month. Bland is back in the White House, and the whole world is better for it. Stephen Crockett of The Root captured my feelings recently when he wrote, quote, America has righted the ship. And while the next four years, and hopefully, prayerfully, eight to 12 years will be boring, we deserve this. We deserve to go back to a time when we didn't know anything about certifying elections or that the white supremacy gang clothing was khakis and polos. We worked for this inside a pandemic. We literally braved it all just to be able to go back to a time when we didn't have this much government as a part of our everyday lives. And I can't wait for this level of boredom to return. He published that on January 20th at theroot.com. So while it's not terrifying and stress-inducing, fortunately, what's happening in Washington is actually hugely consequential. Very, very important things are happening every day and at a really rapid pace, just without the doom and gloom and drama of the past four years. In just his first few days in office, Biden has already taken over 33 executive actions. So together, let's try to adjust to the new reality and get our footing on the changed landscape. In today's episode, we'll look at Biden's flurry of executive orders and what they mean for the future of the country and progressive politics. And for that conversation, I'm joined as always by my co-host, Charlene Chang. Hi, Charlene. Hi, Steve. So I have a question for you, Charlene, in terms of just getting us started here. Our our regular listeners uh, know that uh, you have a daughter um, and who even participated in the pod with Elizabeth Warren a little bit. And so I'm just curious how she's experiencing this transition and the new presidency and what that's been like for her. Yeah, she's totally stoked. And she still um, talks about it every day. Like, I can't believe Trump is out of the office. And, but she's still making up Trump jokes. And she said something really fun and funny lately. She said, you know what? I just feel like we didn't really party. I mean, the fact that Biden won and Trump is really out of the White House, we, there should be much bigger parties. Like, you know, I feel like we... We got to like really party and celebrate, you know, because it was the, you know, because of the pandemic, like we just watched, you know, the news on TV and we didn't really obviously could not yes, celebrate with other, real, her, other people her, her in real life. Child. Yes, totally. And I said, you know, well, during normal times, you're right. I said, I totally get it. I think during normal times, there would be all sorts of parties and we would, people would be probably dancing in the street and there would be parties at homes. And you know what she said? She goes, for example, I think Steve Phillips would have a party and he would be there. <laughs> <laughs> so you owe her a party. <laughs> well, that's because she came to the uh, 2018. The midterms. Mm. Yep. And she had a great time and deep impression and so you are the party guy believe it or not That's hilarious anyone who knows me will be like <laughs> rolling on the floor laughing at that image so today before we kind of dive into talking about the executive orders i did want to introduce a new segment on our podcast that we're calling how we win the civil war and as we've talked about you know last episode in the wake of the capitol hill riots instigated, by the way, by our former commander-in-chief. We just have this segment looking at this moment compared to the Civil War. So, Steve, I know you've been analyzing our current political climate 
through the lens of the Civil War for about like the last year. Um, you've talked to me about it. Now you've increasingly talked about it in your articles and on the podcast. Before, by the way, I wanted to just mention, you were doing this literally like before the elections, before it became fashionable. Now it's, you know, you see this kind of framing all the time. Um, but you're actually you're actually writing a book about this coming out this fall from the new press on exactly this topic. So to help listeners understand these events that we're experiencing, the events we experienced over the past month, past two months, and even the past four years, love to just hear a little bit from your analysis and what you're learning through your research for the book, uh, through the context of history to help us get in clear, uh, greater clarity around this moment. So that's why we're introducing this new segment. And... I wanted to just check in with you and how you're looking at the current Republican strategy through that civil war framework and what does it imply for the future of this country in our politics in a post-Trump era? Yeah, I'm just looking at the, as we're recording this, the um, the legal team for Trump has submitted its response on the on the impeachment. And also as a lawyer, I, I, I'm, I'm, I can't yes. even wait for this because I yes. know how, what a gong show it's been. Yes. As a, as a lawyer, it's somebody who you always worry about messing up your pleadings. So they have a typo in the very first uh, sentence. To the oh honorable, the members of the United States Senate. Come on. They misspelled United, United States Senate. And then, well, I was uh, going to say, is it like a, you know, literally like Mickey Mouse, some cartoon character exactly. that is the team? And then it's just, I mean, it's just fascinating, the lies. It's oh. like they're, we, they deny that if you, his statement, if you, if you don't fight like hell, we're not going to have a country. Had nothing to do with the insurrection. Unbelievable. But it is, it is relevant and it's fascinating um, in terms of looking at the impeachment and how everyone is trying to respond to the insurrection, the different jockeying and positioning the different Republicans are doing. Some trying to excuse it, others just trying to step right into the, I don't know if it's a void, but into that space of riling up and whipping up the same kind of frenzy that led to the attacks on the Capitol. And so it's been quite interesting how this is playing itself out. And so rather than a lot of introspection and distancing, that the fundamental dynamic really has been jockeying for and trying to get Trump the support of Trump's supporters particularly people who want to be, you know, bigger leaders or become future leaders of the uh, Republicans in the House or run for president in 2024. You can see that they're making the calculation that the greater political upside is to try to continue that Trump tradition of fanning the flames of resentment, outrage, etc. And you're seeing it across the board in House of Representatives. They're attacking those, the few, maybe was it eight or 10 who voted for impeachment. Mary Cheney, former Vice President Dick Cheney's daughter, did vote for impeachment. They're totally they're going to, to Wyoming where she is and, and, and attacking her in her home state. The Senate had an early vote. Uh, Rand Paul, one of the apologists, uh, called for this vote. when so 45 senators in this procedural vote, basically all the Republicans showed that they're probably not going to vote for um, impeachment, basically shrugging their shoulders at a murderous insurrection, literally saying, well, we should just move on after an attack that killed a police officer and left five people dead. And then in state legislatures, they're just going crazy in terms of the the so-called voter fraud piece. There's like dozens, I think it's like 60 or close to 100 different bills are already being introduced to try to make it harder for people to vote. And at some level, it's actually not 
surprising when you see how well Trump did in, in, in 2020, right? He's got 10 million more voters than he got in 2016. And there's a piece out in the New York Times on uh, Tuesday showing this, this memo, actually in Politico as well, this memo about how they lost a lot of late-breaking votes. And so he lost votes from 2016 and still got 10 million more. So he really got like whatever, 12, 14 million new votes. So you could look at that and say, well, that's a good political strategy in terms of how to proceed. And so let's just step into those shoes. So it's somewhat understandable Republicans are doing that. But what's even more problematic is whether the Democrats can do in that context. And I think all of these folks are misreading the situation. And it's much clearer looking through the lens of the Civil War is that it's, a, it's the difference between having passionate supporters who will go to war, as literally happened in the, in the 1860s, um, and it's somewhat literally happened this, this past January, distinguishing that from having majority support. And that's one of the things that's most important. I think that Democrats in particular and progressives really need to take into heart is that as passionate, forceful, and you know, violent as that right-wing white nationalist movement can be, it is not now and has never been a majority of the country. It wasn't a majority during the Civil War, which is why they lost the Civil War. Underneath Trump, he never got majority support in the Gallup opinion polls. He didn't get a majority of support when he ran in 2016. He didn't get majority support in the states he won that gave him the Electoral College in 2016. The vote splintered. And so he, but he carried himself with such, you know, bravado that if you can misinterpret the political strength of that. And what the election showed, and in a lot of ways, even more the Georgia runoff showed, is that that's not majority support. And that there is, in fact, what we talked about in our first book, Brown is the New White, a new American majority. And so it's critical to hold on to that understanding and understand two things. One is that this opposition will always and has always been there from the founding of the country through the Civil War to the destruction of the, of the Reconstruction after the Civil War to the attacks on the, the civil rights movement to Trump's period today. They're always going to be there. They're always going to fight and they're always going to fight as, as hard as they can. And they've always been a minority. So there are, there are governing implications of that then in terms of how we win the Civil War. And that the correct response is not to try to figure out common ground with people who want to destroy you. If they want to come along on common ground around democracy and equality, that's great. But it's about building and consolidating power among Democrats and progressives in the new American majority, people of color and progressive whites, which is a growing majority. I actually ran the numbers re recently, even from Obama's years, whites were 72% of the, of the electorate. Then it was down to 70% in 2016. In this last election, 67%. So the people of color are increasingly large percentage of the population. And the progressive whites uh, percentage is holding steady. And so the new American majority is growing. And that's got to be the focus. How do we strengthen and solidify and expand its power? Passing a new Voting Rights Act. Making D.C. a state. Passing D.C. statehood, which would get us two new senators from um, a majority black state then. Immigration reform, expanding the Supreme Court, those types of power building efforts are what is required to solidify our power with the clarity that the attacks are going to be ongoing and to continue going on. And so that's, I think, my main take in terms of the, 
how we win the civil war is to understand and appreciate what this moment actually is and that it's a continuation of this resistance to democracy and equality, but there's also a clear roadmap for how to defeat it. And that is what we saw in Georgia. And that's what we can do if people are clear-eyed and correct and smart going forward. Which speaking of the things we can do, that leads us to today's discussion. We're going to talk about Biden administration's first attempts at doling out justice. And that's come in the form of a series of executive actions Fast and Furious, and I'm here for it. In fact, um, there have been so many executive orders that the New York Times editorial board decided they needed to release an op-ed last week titled Ease Up on the Executive Actions, Joe, which I don't think I've ever seen them do for another president, but we (laughs) we could talk about that. In that op-ed, they waffled between the pros and cons of the executive orders. They even had this kind of strange quote, about Satan's pen. They had quoted a senior fellow at Brookings Institution. Uh, You know, he was basically saying that that's what executive orders are sometimes called. And according to Newsweek, Biden had signed 25 executive orders in his first 12 days, more than Trump and Obama combined over the same period. So Steve, um, in terms of the op-ed and Biden's use of executive actions, just wanted to check in with you on what, you know, your thoughts and feelings on it overall right well just uh you know a little um what was the thing from our uh the whole podcast starting can be like 70s references as we uh, as we show our vintage uh schoolhouse rock right i'm just oh, a bill yeah. sitting on capitol hill mm-hmm. so in terms of structuring this a little bit of education piece right executive order is not a bill as schoolhouse rock explained how a bill comes into into being it's order from the president about the functioning of the executive branch of the government and it does not require passage by congress in that regard and but it does have implications in terms of how the government operates and certainly the uh, the executive branch right and because you don't need approval can't be overridden by congress and then Congress could pass legislation to try to undo part of it, but it's done and undone by a president. And so that's the first thing is that a number of these executive orders were done by Trump. And so a lot of what Biden is just doing is undoing it. And there's this, this very long piece in the New York Times ran Tuesday on looking at everything that Trump was doing in the 77 days, I guess, after the election to try to steal the election. And one of the things they referenced is what they wanted to do an executive order that would basically undo the 14th. Amendment to the United States, which provides equal protection of the laws to anyone born or naturalized in the United States. And so this whole thing about, you know, people who are not citizens and they come to the country and then they have a child here, Trump and them and Stephen Miller and the white nationalists wanted to say those people who are born here, despite what the 14th Amendment says, should not be U.S. citizens. And that's, it's an outrageous view. It's a racist view. But Trump wanted to do an executive order that would declare that, uh, which would just kind of further muddy the waters as well. And so it's that type of thing that Biden's been undoing and undoing it fast and rapidly. And a lot of these things are very consequential in terms of like the the, uh, Paris Climate Accords. You know, Trump pulled himself, pulled us out of that. So putting us back into that. So in a lot of ways, it's getting us back onto the trajectory that we were on um, under the Obama-Biden administration. So that's the, that's the first order. The New York Times just really needs to 
I don't know what to say about it in terms of taking a <laughs> breath or whatnot, but it's just unbelievable. Perspective, perspective. Something. In our last episodes, we had discussed several areas that we felt that the new administration should be focusing on in its first 100 days. And again, the three broad imperatives for the Biden administration that you identified were one, build power to advance the cause and withstand the assaults, two, improve people's lives, and three, govern with an eye to expanding new American majority, not just chasing Trump's shrinking base. What do you feel Biden's push to sign these executive orders say about the future of his presidency? Well, so far, it's actually quite encouraging and, and, and surprisingly encouraging. And so the... Especially, do you feel like for... What did you call him early in the oh, show? Oh, centrist like grandpa. Bland, white centrist grandpa and uh, bland, bland back in the White House. Well, no, it's, but it's, what's interesting about it is... Um, that's another thing I was working on in terms of the book. I mean, remember how Obama got totally attacked for saying that the police arresting renowned Harvard scholar, professor Henry Louis Gates in his home was a stupid thing. Mm-hmm. And so they totally attacked him. I made him do this beer summit with the arresting officer and Professor Gates. You have to come to the White House because they didn't want a black man saying anything about racism. And that really riled people up. And the fact that Biden is white centrist grandpa gives him more leeway to talk about systemic racism and to do things. We were, Susan and I were watching the, um, his press conference around the, the uh, racial justice pieces. And again, I'm a little bit cynical and jaded. Susan's like, I'm actually feeling quite hopeful about this. So he can say and do things that it's harder for, frankly, a person of color to do. And so I feel good about that. And I also feel it turns out they've been very targeted. And there was another New York Times article, we should try to link to that, about the level of specificity and detail with which they have gone about uprooting the Trump folks who are been, trying to embed within the executive branch and putting in place people throughout the bureaucracy to be able to move the agenda forward. And so that's the advantage of having someone who's had a lot of experience in government is they know where and what to focus on. And I think that the things they're doing on immigration, so, you know, a lot of the actors are happy about that. The thing about the climate pieces, they are the right things. And it's both substantively and symbolically that change is coming and change is coming fast. Yeah. And again, many of these uh, executive orders that he's signing are actually, like you said, uh, reversals of damaging Trump era policies. So I wanted to go over some of those and talk about what those reversals mean in a bit more detail for the new American majority so far. And I wanted to start with uh, talking about immigration, which we discuss quite a bit over our episodes, including the last episode. So Trump's attacks on immigrants have harmed so many communities as many of us know and have been documented. And these executive actions are meant to begin to reverse some of that harm. Biden has issued orders so far where we try to include non-citizens in the census and vast majority of those non-citizens are people of color. Orders that include reversing Trump's Muslim ban, restrictions on U.S. entry for passport holders from seven Muslim-majority countries, and revoking Trump's policy that targeted sanctuary cities, as well as stopping construction of the border wall, remember the border wall, by terminating the national emergency declaration used to fund it. What are some of your thoughts on those reversals? Do you feel like they're enough? Good start. Are they moving in the right direction? 
Has he picked the right ones to start with? Yeah, I think we have to first contextualize all the immigration stuff in terms of what immigration is and has been and has meant in this country. And so starting with the fact that Trump's rocketing to the top of the Republican field in 2015 came about when he was attacking Mexicans. They're coming to this country, they're rapists, they're murderers. That's when his candidacy took off. And so this whole issue of immigration is how we have grappled with the question of what is this country and who is an American within this country? And that right started in the very beginning, the very first immigration law in this country, 1790 Immigration Act, says that to be a U.S. citizen, you must be a free white person. And that was the law of this country explicitly until the 1950s and in practice until the 1960s. And so the question is, is this a white country or is not a white country? And then that's translated itself out through immigration policy and practice. And what's also been so pernicious about this is that, that that's one of the things that people don't fully appreciate about Trump too, is that as to where the party's going to go and all this kind of a thing is that they mistakenly, I mean, he is in fact a white nationalist and a racist, but he's like a lazy, uncommitted one. And they feel like he is like one of their people and is there for the cause. And he just loved the adulation that came from stirring all this stuff up. And now that it hasn't worked, he's just going to play golf for the rest of his life. And that was his, his parting statement. Have a nice life. right? But what he did and what, and what fueled his, you know, his ego and his work was turning over the government to the white nationalists, particularly Stephen Miller. And there's this excellent book called Hate Monger. Stephen Miller, Donald Trump, and the White Nationalist Agenda by this uh, woman of color writer, Jean Guerrero, that documents all of this. So Stephen Miller knew specifically what pro-equality, non-racist changes to immigration laws had happened, particularly in the 60s. And then he gave Trump all these executive orders to roll back the U.S. policy to make it much more of a whites-only public policy. And so that's what these executive orders that Biden has laid out have done. This non-citizens in the census piece, the Muslim ban. So they're both, they've, all these things have been specifically designed to make America whiter, literally, and symbolically symbol to white people that this is a pro-white administration. So for Biden to overturn those things counters both of it, is it makes America more multiracial, and it sends a signal that we are not a white's first country. So I think all the things that he's done have been both substantively and symbolically very significant. Our friends in the activist world, I think, are happy about the, certainly the initial steps, obviously much more is to come and to be done. But the substance of it is important, and the fact that he has taken on immigration also sends a very powerful signal about what this country is and who it's for. Yeah, I definitely agree. And I, I know that there was a little bit of concern that he had maybe made some comment about immigration not necessarily being um, a first priority. There was some signaling. Maybe it was not signaling, on the record. I think. Mm -hmm. It was a signaling. And so I think a number of our activist friends were getting really concerned. And so it's good to see that that is not actually the case. Um, and what I wanted to share a bit more about is some more evidence on the executive actions that Biden has taken to further protect the need, not just reversing Trump's orders, but actually going further and taking uh, measures to, to further protect the needs of immigrants and dreamers. 
and advance justice. So, for example, Biden has signed orders that extend deferrals of deportation and work authorizations for Liberians with a safe haven in the United States. He's strengthened DACA after Trump's efforts to undo protections for undocumented people brought into the country as children. And Biden's also expected to sign three new orders related to immigration today as we record. So that um, one of which is to include a task force to put back together families separated from Trump's zero tolerance policy. Yeah, and I just well, want I to point out to my dad and stepmom the other day were in Texas and that, you know, not terribly political people. My stepmom was just saying this really, she's like what they did with the children was just yeah. so terrible. It's uh, was just going to say that one of the things my daughter and she's nine and we do talk a lot about politics and keep her informed in this household. But one of the things she immediately said after inauguration was, mom, what's going to, you know, is he going to do something about the kids in the cages at the border? Mm -hmm. And it's something that she's repeatedly asked me to give her updates on. And she said, well, what is happening? Um, and I've just found it both terribly moving and then very clear in terms of even a, a, a child, an elementary school student can feel that this is a priority and also an indication of like one of the most inhumane things that Trump did under his, um, you know, administration is separating families and, uh, you know, the treatment of immigrants and migrants at the border, including children. Well, one of the things I did want to lift up that is a piece of good news and we want to shine a light, light on is that Amy Allison, who is the former president of Democracy in Color, wrote a great piece that came out this week on February 1st for Newsweek on Biden's executive orders, and she lifted up immigrants' rights activist and advocate Alita Garcia. Alita is the vice president of advocacy for Forward.us, an organization focused on passing comprehensive immigration reform. She and other immigration activists have been working for years, just doing crucial work in making all of this happen, everything that's culminating to this moment. Just much, much gratitude and appreciation goes to Alita. And Steve, I just wanted to check in with you and see if you can talk a little bit about what strengthening DACA actually means and who else has played a key role in this fight that we should know about. Yeah, people should definitely look at Amy's piece. And I do I do think we, just, we should just pause for a moment to salute and honor uh, Alita's work. I mean, just in terms of the level to which she has been in the trenches on this. So she, I've worked with her I don't know, maybe five, six, seven years now. And we actually formed together this organization, Inclusive, which is a diversity talent bank um, for people to you know, be in campaigns and in government and whatnot. And in 2016, I remember her saying she was going to do uh, the inclusive work part-time so that she could wrap up the work on immigration reform. And this was before you know Trump was elected, and so the level of somebody who has been in the trenches fighting for comprehensive immigration reform, fighting for uh, DACA, which is really you know it's the dreamers, the people who are talking about who are brought here as children, um, and then that Trump has been trying to send them back, and that actually was an executive order by Obama that protected them, and people came forward to sign up for it and gave all their information to the government, and then Trump gets elected and uses that information to go after them. So they've really had to live in fear um, for all this time. And so it's, you know, and in terms of what's the, the, been very moving to me is the fact that now they actually have prevailed in this fight and have withstood the attacks, taking it to Supreme Court on multiple courts and being able to protect 
um, the DACA program as well as themselves. And so, again, both substantially and symbolically, but substantially in terms of, you know, close to a million people's lives and the people who know and love them have more security now in this country and, and have much more prospect about becoming full citizens, but certainly can rest easy knowing that the government's not coming after them literally. So that is one of the immediate things I think that we should all feel really, really good about. Yeah, definitely. Um, super appreciative of that work, uh, the work that Lita's done and many others have done. I wanted to just move on to talking about the orders issued by Biden repealing Trump's attacks on many of the groups that do make up the new American majority. So just as a few examples, uh, there's been a reversal on Trump's ban on transgender Americans joining the military. There's been a reversal on the discrimination on the basis of gender identity and sexual orientation. And this is one of my perhaps favorite ones, (laughs) rescinding the 1776 commission and direct agencies to review their actions to ensure racial equity. Steve, what can you tell our listeners about uh, why the rescinding of 1776 commission is, has been so important? I think for all of those things, actually, that it's not so much that, I mean, it was that they were trying to like, you know, harm different people with the specifics of the different things that they were doing. But more importantly, they were sending a signal about what this country was, what what and who people should fear. They have all these fears about what's going to be happening, what is happening in the country and who's actually coming and becoming more, you know, prominent and, and powerful, frankly, within the country. So all that sense of, you know, cultural panic and fear, Joy recalled demographic panic, and that's the fuel for what got Trump 10 million more voters, is stoking that. And the way that they stoked it was sending signals and sending symbolic signals. So it's not like any of those different, those executive orders that Trump did were particularly huge numbers of people were going to be going to be affected. But it would, the greater consequence was it sent a signal saying that, oh, no, those transgender people are bad and wrong. They can't be part of the military, uh, sexual orientation, gender identity. That's some kind of deviant thing. We don't stand for that. That's what was happening. And so it's significant for Biden to undo that. And so that's on a, on a symbolic level, as well as on the, on the substantive people. And the 1776 thing is just kind of hilarious, but also instructive, right? Is that, uh, you know, Cole Hannah-Jones, the New York Times, did that major, major project around pushing to redefine the year in which America started as 1619, when slaves were first brought to this country, not 1776. So the conceptual threat to the worldview that this is this, fundamentally, you know, straight white Christian male nation was a direct attack on that mindset. And Trump and Stephen Miller and them saw it that way. And so they direct, they directly created this, this 1776 commission, try to say, no, forget 1619 when slaves come here. That has nothing to do with this country. 1776, that's the greatness of this, you know, country and our founding white fathers. And so they came up with this kind of justification and validation of the glorification of really white nationalism in this country. And so that's what that stupid ass commission was. And then uh, for, for Biden to undo it and abolish it on the very first day or one of the first few days was kind of hilarious, actually. I was actually tweeting that what he should have done is he should have restacked it with uh, like Nicole Hannah-Jones and a bunch of other people. And then they should, under that banner, come out with the, the denial of 1776. But it did send a very strong signal, again, conceptually around what is this country and who is it for? Yeah, that's right. And I also just 
love that image. I love that image of just here's your dumbass <laughs> idea and here's how fast we're going to get rid of it. So what we're seeing is the pattern of, you know, with Biden's executive orders, reversals and then advancements. And so I also want to talk about how many of the executive orders Biden's been signing are also advancing and promoting equity. The Biden-Harris administration announced the formation of a White House Gender Policy Council focused on equitable policies for Black, Indigenous, immigrant, LGBTQ, and disabled women and girls of color. Biden also appointed Susan Rice to head the Domestic Policy Council, which will be tasked with advancing a racial equity agenda in response to COVID. Rice served as National Security Advisor under President Barack Obama, as many of us know, and she was the former U.S. ambassador to the U United Nations. Steve, what do you make of Rice's appointment? And in previous um, episodes, you have said you have you know her and have had you know a history with her, and um, Biden's executive orders related to racial and gender equity. Yeah, and again, I think what's most significant about these things is the the signal that they send, even more than the substantive piece. So the substantive things that they're doing are all fine. And it's some positive steps around racial um, equity and justice, but I mean, it's nowhere near what's going to be required. And we are going to need to get back to uh, the racial reckoning that happened after George Floyd's murder. But everything subsequently that they have done in that regard is significant. Um, but I think what's most significant about it is the fact that they're putting Susan in charge and that they're putting her in charge in a cross-cutting fashion. So when, when Biden met with the NAACP and the civil rights leaders, one of the things they pushed him for was to kind of create, I don't know if they call it, like basically it's like this racial justice czar type of position, that person who would have high stature and be able to work across the different um, departments and offices within the federal government. And so that's what he's put Susan Rice into that position. So the fact that he's created it in and of itself is significant and is, a, and is a, a being responsive to the civil rights community's leadership. And the fact that it's Susan is consequential, right? And so what they're saying, we went to college together. I'm a Stanford back in the day. Uh, she got, she won the Rhodes Scholarship when I was president of the Black Student Union. I remember saying to her, it's like, how do you justify taking uh, uh, the money from that racist uh, Cecil Rhodes, right? When the Rhodes Scholarship was uh, named after the Rhodesian leader. Um, she was about missing a beat. It's like, it's about time you started giving some money to some Black people, right? And so she has a, fierceness to her that is fairly core. And that's actually, frankly, why she's in this role and not in like Secretary of State, because she's very controversial, right? And, I, and ironically, in terms of the, uh, you know, international affairs. So Bishop Tutu, the South African leader, came to Stanford back in the day, and I was preparing my speech to speak before him. And I was afraid my speech was too radical. And I remember I had Susan Rice look at it, and she's all like, that's not radical. But it was a pretty radical speech, but it showed her orientation. And so I think the fact that she's in charge and that she's in charge across these different entities and that she has stature, she was considered for vice president, she was on that short list, is going to put real force the, in the power of the presidency behind a cross-cutting look at racial justice. And so I'm excited to see what they're going to come up with. Yeah, I just also wanted to say that I was personally particularly surprised and moved by the executive order and memorandum related to the Asian American and Pacific Islander community. So the, um, Biden signed an executive order um, making it clear that the hate crimes related to and in the wake 
of COVID targeted towards Asian Americans and Pacific Islanders need to be taken seriously as hate crimes. And it, it directly acknowledged the need to address those and the impact against members of the AAPI community. Much of that hate crime, by the way, was due to our former president, who had repeatedly, again, as a reminder to our listeners, referred to COVID as the China plague or the Chinese virus, or my favorite, the Kung flu. And Trump had over the you know past year just repeatedly and openly blamed China and the Chinese for the virus. And as a result, the impact was a lot of fear and hatred and resentment towards basically people who look like me, you know, people who looked Asian or Pacific Islander. I personally know a number of people, Asian Americans in particular, who had experienced micro and macro racist aggressions during these past, you know, almost a year during COVID. And I may never have mentioned this, but I remember it was early last spring, probably March or April, when the stories of these attacks were coming out, that I found myself walking around my own, you know, relatively quiet, safe neighborhood in Berkeley. But I was just, I was, I had this underlying feel of fear and anxiety that I would get, you know, somebody would drive by and shout like a racial epithet at me or throw something at me. And yes, you could say, well, my, my neighborhood is quote unquote safe, but as many of us people of color know is it doesn't matter where you are in this country, you know, racism exists everywhere. And when you know, emotions are heightened that way, none of us feel safe when, especially when the president is riling people up. Right. So that was um, something that I personally felt super moved by that this has happened so quickly. And I don't remember any time in our history, anything like this being done by a president. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, what am, and if you're talking about that fear about going out, one of my running buddies, it was, I was talking at the beginning of the pandemic, the same thing. It's like, I don't even want to go outside. I'm just afraid of people, you know, being, be, encountering this anti-Asian hostility, right? And this is in San Francisco, right? Mm-hmm. So I think that that's the, the, the larger thing as, you know, as we're talking about this is that the executive orders are, you know, um, meaningful and, and by, you know, I think across the board, good. But even more significant is you have the president of the United States using the bully pulpit to lift up and validate a different definition of what this country is, that this is a multiracial democracy rather than a white nationalist country. And so Trump used the executive orders and his bully pulpit to try to redefine America as a white nationalist country and got 74 million people to agree with him. But Biden is very explicitly using his bully pulpit to say that that's not what it is. And I think that's the larger message of all of these um, executive orders. Before we wrap up, I know that there were a number of executive orders. Uh, we're not gonna get to them all, but they're, in terms of a fairly large and important bucket is um, related to the economy, economic matters, executive orders that uh, are related to economic issues. And what are your takeaways from those orders related to that? Yeah, I think both into the executive orders, and there's a number of things that are on the economy. Executive orders, they uh, lifting up the issue around a $15 minimum wage was actually much more than even the Obama administration was putting forward, um, restoring collective bargaining rights. And so it's those, those pieces are significant, again, in and of themselves, but also as a signal and symbolically, choosing Janet Yellen as the Treasury Secretary and then putting forward another COVID relief package that's at, uh, you know, close to a $2 trillion package. And so what's most significant about that whole constellation of things 
and I think this has been lost, and I haven't seen much analysis about this, is that it gets to the issue around the role of government. All these attacks, you know, uh, Trump, you know, was saying, and then even in the Georgia Senate race, oh, it's socialist, socialist. And I was like laughing the other day, reading this report that came out, the Congressional Budget Office, nonpartisan report, came out talking about the projections for the economy in the next decade. And then in this report, it says the downturn was not as severe as expected because the first stage of the recovery took place sooner and was stronger than it was expected. So the economy is bouncing back. The reason it is bouncing back is because of socialism, is because we gave trillions of dollars to businesses and to people and unemployment relief. What is it? Uh, uh, to each according to their need, to each according to their work, whichever that piece is. That's what we did in this country when the pandemic hit. And what we're now seeing is that it is really revitalizing this capitalist economy. And so the fact that Biden is leaning in to all of that, a robust role for government, not being apologetic, moving significant resources is a very, very encouraging and healthy development in terms of, I think, what the role of the presidency is around defining what the economy should be, how we should be advancing the economy, and what the government should be doing. So, Steve, before we go, I'm just um, really grateful we got a chance to sort of break down some of these executive orders, and we know they're coming fast and furious, even as we speak, by the time we're done, we'll probably see in the news, you know, new ones being signed. So it's it's all pretty exciting, even if it is boring. <laughs> it's, it's boringly exciting. And I think... Um, we're just, you know, here to help people kind of understand that it is actually more exciting than just what might seem like signing pieces of paper. And I wanted to ask you, Steve, where do you hope to see Biden and his administration go from here next? First thing that pops in your mind. Well, I think there's two things. Um, it, it's it's Biden and it's the Democrats overall. So one is the impeachment trial is going to start, right, February 8th. And so, again, having, you know, being immersed in uh, studying the Civil War, post-Civil War, that this is a very direct corollary to that situation, where after you have an insurrection, then people, everyone's like, oh, well, we didn't really mean it. Let us back in. It's all going to be fine. Without any accountability and without taking steps to protect the people who were being oppressed, which was the source of the conflict in the first place. And so there needs to be real accountability. So I'm hopeful that the, that the impeachment proceedings will really shine a light and make very clear and put a lot of, make, certainly at least make the Republicans very uncomfortable about what actually happened, because that's important to the democracy. It's important where we go from here. And then that's the other part of this, is that are we going to actually explicitly and aggressively put in place the kinds of mechanisms that will enable the new American majority to become the actual majority within the country. And so during Reconstruction, that was attacked. After we passed the Voting Rights Act, that was attacked. And so we have a chance now that we have control of the Senate to pass a Voting Rights Act. I think Ron Brownstein had this tweet about this recently, that there's no more important issue in terms of the future of politics in this country than to put in place a strong, robust Voting Rights Act to be able to counter all of these attacks on voting and democracy is gonna happen at the local level. So we've got a chance, we have a window, but it's gonna be a challenge. And so that's one of the things I'm looking at most intently is what's happening with the new Voting Rights Act, where is Fair Fight and Stacey Abrams and those folks going on that front? What is Biden and what are Chuck Schumer and the Senate gonna do 
about bringing that about. So that's what I'll be looking at, and I, I'm sure you, you and uh, your, your, your daughter, who will be prodding you on the progress of the administration, will be tracking it as well. And, and you still owe her a party. <laughs> yes, well, it's going to take some planning for that to uh, occur. We'll, we'll try to step back into my uh, college age self, but even then, I mainly went to meetings, but one day. So that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or signing up for our mailing list at democracyincolor.com. And if you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment there. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production produced by Olivia Parker with support from Charlene Chang, Fola Olifade, and April Elkier. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio of San Francisco. Until next time, enjoy the boredom and keep the faith.